a Pearson Harnish, but a huge third down conversion. You got the game on? Yep. On the move, down to the 24-yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He, he won't say the score. Laid up and waited for the pass. Short drop Come out on, of the gun. who's winning? Rifles towards the right corner, complete to Vander Cooey, who steps across the plane. Ah, say the damn score. You're listening to the original Say the Damn Score podcast, part of the Say the Damn Score podcast network. Here's your host, Logan Anderson. Welcome to episode 105 of the Say the Damn Score podcast. As you just heard the big voice guys say, I'm Logan Anderson, a freelance sportscaster in the Twin Cities metro area, recording from the world-famous Say the Damn Score studio, a.k.a. my spare bedroom. As always, this podcast is dedicated to sportscasting and sharing stories and ways to improve in the business by talking to the best and brightest people in the business. The Say the Damn Score podcast is presented by Schold Media Group, the best place online to connect and learn from other young media professionals. Grow your career through their engaging content, demo reel critique services, job placement programs, and much more. Find them at SholdMediaGroup.com. That's S-H-O-L-D MediaGroup.com. If you like the show and want to subscribe, I would sure appreciate it. It's available just about anywhere you can find podcasts. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, or on SayTheDamnScore.com. This podcast serves a pretty narrow niche, but as you likely know, I'm not the only show that talks about sportscasting in the niche. In fact, uh, I'm not even the only one in the Twin Cities at this moment. The two other most prominent podcasts that I'm at least aware of are the Voice Behind the Voice podcast with Sean Aronson, who is the broadcaster for a minor league baseball team in St. Paul in the Twin Cities, and Play by Playcast with Joel Godet, who is the voice of Ball State and does some network stuff as well. We all kind of attack it from a different angle, but I personally listen to both shows, and if you're a fan of this show, you might as well listen to all three, because I think we all do good work, and we all have something different to offer. I bring this up because there's a new kid on the niche sportscasting podcast block, and his show is called The On The Air Podcast, and it's hosted by a high school kid named Aiden Blank. And his last episode happened to be with Josh Appel, who does NFL games for the Sports USA Network. When you have a podcast dedicated to a small industry and talking to people within the industry, and there's more than one of you, inevitably, you're eventually going to cross over guests. Joel and Sean and I have had the same guests numerous times, but it's never happened on the same week yet. Poor Aiden with his on-the-air podcast. He's only four episodes in, and and now we're having the same guest this week. Because I'm also talking to Josh Appel of Sports USA Network. Our conversations are pretty different. Both are worth listening to, and, you know, frankly, it's just nice to give a shout-out to a young kid showing great hustle, and uh, to Sean and Joel, who both do excellent work as well. I would highly recommend to listening and subscribing to their shows as well as mine, because after all, it's a podcast. We don't have to compete. You can listen to us all. We're not fighting over quarter hours or anything like that. So without further ado, Josh Appel of Sports USA, thanks for coming on the Say the Damn Score podcast. Of course. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Happy to do it. And you are one of the the rising stars, up-and-comers, however you want to say it, in this business, uh, under 30 still, and 
doing network play-by-play. At what point in your career did you know that you wanted to do sportscasting? Just because I'm curious if with the early rise, you got an early start as a as a young man. Uh, great question. So I would say I knew probably around like fifth or sixth grade. Like this is what I wanted to, you know, focus in on. They had morning announcements in my middle school and I would always hang out there and watch them film it and whatnot. Never got a chance to do it until I went uh, into high school. I went to a high school in South Florida called Cypress Bay and they have a nationally renowned uh, TV production program as far as like going to competitions and winning awards and things like that. And so that caught my eye right away as a freshman. And uh, a couple of years in, I decided, right now, it's time to take TV production. I had done uh, public address announcing for our basketball team my freshman and sophomore year, did that all through high school. But that's how I kind of got introduced and in touch with the TV production teacher at the time. And so we did my junior and senior year. I was able to do uh, play-by-play for all of our football games um, on the Internet. So it was web stream, and we would create rundowns and graphics and all this stuff. And I'd get to do play-by-play uh, each week for our home football games. And that's kind of when I got like a real taste for that part of it. I was interning at different radio stations down here in South Florida. Um, I interned at three different ones starting from when I was 14. So I was kind of engulfed in it uh, really heavily in high school. But I knew I wanted to get into this probably in fifth or sixth grade. Like I would, I would sit at home and play PlayStation. I'm sure there are a lot of guys and girls who do this who can relate to this. But, you know, when they would play sports video games, whether it was Madden, MLB The Show, NBA Live, uh, NBA 2K, whatever it is that you play, you know, you put the TV on mute and you do your own play-by-play. In fact, I remember playing – I can't believe this is even a game, but do you remember NFL head coach? I do not. Like, that was that was the game that EA Sports made, and it was very short-lived, but I had it. And that was more like you would literally just watch a simulation of a game and make coaching decisions. And I would just do play-by-play of that. And then, of course, I would do it for Madden as well. But that's the one that really stuck out to me um, from back then. But, yeah, to answer your original question, I know it was very long-winded, uh, a very long-winded answer. But uh, probably fifth or sixth grade is when I knew I wanted to get into this. What did your friends say when you were playing video games and you started doing the play-by-play in the middle of your, uh, your competition? Uh, well, I was normally alone when I would play in the games. Uh, I, I would try and... Uh, I was a little bit shy back then, which is funny to think about now, but I was a bit shy back then. So the only time I would do that was when I was alone in my room. But when I would play with my uh, play video games with my friends, uh, I'd go over to their houses, they would come over mine. It was a little more, uh, a little less of that. Uh, more of that was a, a kind of me thing when I was left to my own devices. When you got to do those football play-by-play games as a high schooler, did you just kind of get thrown on there and said, hey, go try and figure it out? Or did you have a teacher guiding you? Uh, what did that tape sound like? Uh, I thought at the time it was pretty good. Um, there's, and I sh- probably shouldn't disclose this, but there is a high school demo reel of mine that includes play-by-play for when I was in high school floating around on YouTube somewhere. I'm not saying you should go look that up, but I am saying that it does exist. And time for a quick Production note, I did go back and find that YouTube video, and here are a couple clips from it. Uh, I do have permission from Josh to share these, but it just shows that we all can come a long way 
And frankly, he's better in high school than a lot of professionals that I hear. But I'm glad he doesn't yell, oh, baby, at the end of every touchdown anymore. Days in motion. Play action fake. He'll run it. He has room. Picks up a block. Has the first down. Running the far side. Makes a move. Go for the pile on Gerontae Lewis. In for the touchdown. Oh, baby. Cypress Bay goes ahead 13-7. to Motion hand up to Kaiser up the middle. He has room. He's going to go in his second touchdown of the night. Oh, baby. A 25-yard run for number 28, Josh Kaiser. Thanks for being a good sport, Josh. Um, our TV production teacher, his name is Kurt Noster. Uh, one of my mentors, still talk to him to this day. He was more on the production side. So as far as like the intricacies of play-by-play, we didn't get a lot of uh, guidance there from him. But at the, end of, at the same time, he knew what good and what, what bad sounded like. And so if he found us, you know, kind of strange from what we were supposed to do, he would tell us. Uh, but we were kind of left to our own devices in, the, in that sense um, to just kind of figure things out. And, you know, I was a sports nut. So I watched a lot. Um, I would listen to the broadcasters. So I had a general idea of, you know, what I was trying to make it sound like. But for the most part, that was just kind of running with it and, doing our best to make it sound uh, like the pros that we would listen to and watch. And knowing that you wanted to go into sports casting at an early age, usually you see a lot of those type of broadcasters choose to further their education at Syracuse or Kansas or Missouri or Northwestern. You picked South Florida. What was the decision-making process behind that? Well, Obviously, you know, it's natural to look at those schools, and I did. And then once I, you know, said to my parents, hey, you know, I really want to go to Syracuse. And they said, all right, look up the tuition. And I looked up the tuition for an out-of-state, and that was the end of that conversation. So um, while I was interning at different radio stations down here in South Florida, um, I became very friendly with someone named Chris Winningham. And Chris at the time was uh, a student at the University of Miami, and he was the sports director uh, for their student radio station, WVUM. And I saw that he was able to do play-by-play for football and basketball and baseball and all the sports at UM. And I said to myself, hmm, I really want to do that when I go to college because I'm already doing something similar to that in high school. And I really wanted to get that opportunity still in college. And so um, knowing that I would have to stay in-state, I applied to Florida, Florida State, USF, UCF, and the University of North Florida in Jacksonville. And I didn't get into Florida or Florida State, and I got into the other three. And so when I narrowed my choices down to that, UNF didn't have a football team, so they were the ultimate fallback. UCF had a radio station for students, but they didn't do nearly as much um, in athletics at the time as USF's Bulls Radio did. And so one of the first things I did when uh, I found out I was accepted to USF and I knew I was going to go there was I reached out to uh, Nick Flamia and Nick Grenowitz, who were the uh, sports director and station director at the time. And I said, hey, I'm an incoming freshman, love to get involved. What do I need to do? And they obviously were receptive to that. Uh, Nick Flamia was on his way to graduating, so he was gone. So he put me in touch with Nick Grenowitz and Kirsten Carbach, who were, uh, Kirsten was next in line as a sports director, and Nick was still there um, as a station director. And they were really awesome and welcoming, welcoming me into Bulls radio. And as a freshman, my first summer there, summer B, Nick said, you know, you have some of this experience working in radio down in South Florida. Why not, uh, you know, 
give you a chance to host your own show during uh, the week over the summer. And so I did a three hour show by myself once a week, um, actually twice a week. I take that back. It was twice a week, um, a three hour show on student radio my first summer there. And that kind of snowballed into, you know, doing soccer games early on and then into getting my first analyst role um, with football and so on and so forth. So um, getting involved right away and knowing that U.S. have had that opportunity with student radio where they do football, basketball, baseball, uh, soccer, volleyball, everything, uh, softball, getting that experience uh, was huge. And I saw that and I said, that's where I want to go. And, you know, it was the best decision I ever made. I loved it. all my time at USF, all the people I met, all the relationships I got to form, whether it was with students or people in athletics, coaches, athletes. It was just an amazing experience all around. Did you ever look at the mid-January weather reports in Syracuse and just say, yep, I made the right decision? Uh, yeah, that was certainly not a negative going to USF. was uh, about as cold as it ever got. was probably in the 40s, and that didn't last very long. And uh, I would say that that temperature is probably a good amount. It's probably on the warmer side for a good amount of the time. That would have been uh, up at Syracuse. But uh, I, I know a lot of people who went there. I would say that if I had ended up there, the cold would have been worth it for the experience there for sure. Well, I still question my sanity deciding to move to a major market somewhere in the country and picking Minneapolis. But I, I, I Well, find- hey, Logan, I, I, don't, I don't mean to make you feel bad, but right now in South Florida today, it is 77 degrees and partly cloudy. You did make me feel bad. Podcast over. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things that I want to follow up on that you've already mentioned is you've described yourself as a shy person uh, when you were young, but you've already shown the knack in describing your path to reach out to the people and not be shy in introducing yourself and networking and building relationships. How did you develop that, or is it something that comes naturally? Um, I think it's a little bit of both. Um, just going back to high school, um, I think doing PA and participating in uh, the the TV production program and participating in the weekly show, being on camera a lot, doing the, the broadcast of uh, football uh, for CBTV and, you know, putting myself out there like that. I was a shy freshman, but, you know, you do that enough and you get comfortable and that leads to other things. Um, I interned for uh, three different radio stations. And the first one, all I remember the, the host I contacted was through Facebook. And I remember listening to him on the weekends on the radio because I was a, a little nerd in middle and high school where I would listen to sports radio um, in my spare time. And one of the hosts that I enjoyed, he got another gig at a different radio station. I messaged him on Facebook when I was 14, went in there to talk to him and I was brought in as an intern after that. So it kind of built from there. Um, I interned for Dan Levitard for about a year and a half before he went national. And how that came about was I was doing a, a career project for TV production. And it was our final project for that semester. And I contacted the executive producer and I said, hey, would you guys mind if I came in there, uh, filmed a little bit, and then did an interview? And they were receptive to the idea. And then I, as I was leaving, the executive producer asked me if I wanted to be an intern. And then being exposed to those kind of environments kind of made me more comfortable, kind of made me realize what those people are like and how to act around those people. And, you know, to me, it's just about, you know, being a human, you know, don't make it seem like you're trying to, uh, I guess, advance yourself, but 
just talk to them like they're regular people. And, you know, the relationships blossom from there. I wanted to talk to you about your internship on the Dan Levitard show just because listening to that show, it just sounds wild and almost out of control with the way that they do their show. What was it like behind the scenes? Organized chaos. Um, how those guys are um, on the air is pretty much the same way they are off the air. And I've had uh, nothing but good experiences with those guys. I still keep in touch uh, with them from time to time. And, you know, it's cool to see how that show has evolved. And as someone who, you know, kind of has grown up listening to them, it, that show and the sensibilities have shaped how I view sports. Um, and I'm sure a lot of people can attest to that. But I think the best way to describe it would be organized chaos. I know they play like it's more chaotic, but for the most part, they've got it down pat. And those guys are great. Mike Ryan's a great executive producer. Billy, Chris, Roy, they're all awesome. And then, of course, you have Dan and Stugatz, who are just have some of the best chemistry of any host and co-host that you'll find. And there's a reason they've been that successful, man. It's it's crazy. I mean, those guys are awesome, and they, you know, they've really grown into one of the biggest sports radio shows in America. You were listed when I was reading up on you as the call screener at times for that show. And I imagine, especially when they were local, and I don't want to jump into stereotypes, but the stereotype for a for a person calling into a radio show a lot of times is a weird person. And then you add being from Florida during the day. What was the weirdest call you had to screen? Wow. Um, we had this one prank caller that would call a lot, especially on the weekends. Because, you know, you would do one day on the show during the week, and then you'd have a weekend shift as well um, at the station. And the weekend um, the weekend shows were the ones where you'd get not as many callers, but definitely the more, like, ones that would make you scratch your head. Because Levitard has a very specific audience. And generally speaking, he doesn't take a lot of phone calls um, when he's hosting. Stugatz does a lot more when he's by himself, when Dan's not there. But we had this one prank caller that would call in and act totally normal when I would screen his call and give me a name and whatever, what he wanted to talk about. And the host would cue him up and it would just be some completely off the rails, like impression of something that was just terrible. And I'd have to hang up on him right away. Uh, so that was that chronic caller who I can't remember his name, but uh, you ask anybody who interned at that time and they would attest to the same thing, that it was one of the more interesting uh, Everybody, every intern there who has ever screened calls has screened a call from this gentleman uh, who would prank call the station and somehow escape past all of us all the time. So did you ever figure out how to figure out who he was before he could get on the air? Uh, try and gauge it by his voice because his, his voice is uh, kind of the same pretty much every time he calls. Um, so after a while, you get used to it, and then you think you figure out, all right, because you obviously you type in the name where they're calling from, what they want to talk about. So you could just put in there and say, you know, play along with it and say, yep, I'll put you on hold and then put on there. Do not answer. It is so-and-so. So that's kind of how we dealt with it after a while. Back to your college career. And I think that that's usually not particularly relevant to, to your story, but yours is a little different where you were the 2016 winner of the Jim Nance award for the most outstanding a sports broadcaster in the country at the college level. And I've had, I think, four other Nance Award winners on now, so we understand the process a little bit. But what was your reaction to winning? 
And did you have an idea that you had a chance leading up to getting your name called? So it's an interesting story. Um, I almost didn't even apply for it. Um, Mike Lefko, um, who used to be the play-by-play voice for USF women's basketball and baseball, is the one who ultimately said, well, what do you have to lose? Why wouldn't you apply for it even if you don't win it? And I said, well, wow, what a novel concept. Huh, what's the worst that can happen? So um, he convinced, I remember sitting at a basketball game that I wasn't calling, and, and Mike was there as well. And he was walking up the stairs towards the press area, and he asked me that. And I was like, eh, I'm a little hesitant. I don't really know. I don't know if I could find something that's good enough. He goes, Josh, like, you have nothing to lose. Like, just send something in. So I sent something in, and then, as you said, you know, the process is you send it in, and then you wait like a month or two, and then you finally find out. I didn't really have any expectations for anything. I somehow found a perfect five-and-a-half-minute baseball clip that had a home run and a sacrifice fly uh, where the runner got thrown out of the plate to end an inning. So packed into like four-and-a-half, five minutes. And then I had a nice scoring drive from a USF football game. And then I had tape from a nice little stretch from USF basketball in the conference tournament. I put that together and I was like, all right, this is what I think is my best stuff at this time. Let's hope for the best. And, you know, I, I know a, a few of the guys who were on the All-American list the year before. So that was kind of clouding my judgment because, you know, it's natural to compare yourself to people who are, you know, your age and, you know, doing the same things. And so I didn't really think I had a shot at it. And uh, I remember the weekend or the week before I got a, a message from John Chalesnik and John said, you know, he was impressed with the tape, really appreciated that I, you know, had applied for it and, you know, wished me luck. And then I had sent my stuff to another judge, um, not knowing that he was a judge, asking for a critique. And he said, Josh, I'd be happy to get back to you, but I just want you to know I've already heard your stuff. I was really impressed. And I put you number one on my ballot. And I was like, wait a minute. Once I read that message, I was in shock. I was like, all right, this might be like a serious thing that I have a shot at. And so the day that they announced the award, um, I was doing the flagship broadcast for USF baseball. Uh, it was a conference game on a Friday and I was sitting in the booth. I was very nervous trying not to show up, but I was definitely nervous. Um, I was trying to fill out my scorebook to get ready for the game. And that just was not happening. I would just refresh Twitter, refresh Twitter to see when the announcement was starting. Um, I was talking to Mike, who was doing uh, the broadcast with me. And I just, it was a hectic day. And so finally the uh, announcement starts and um, I have to go downstairs to film our open because uh, it was a simulcast um, on the web and on the radio. So we had to film our open for the webcast. And as that's happening, they're going through all the honorable mentions. And I have my phone in my pocket and like in between takes, uh, I was checking my phone to see, you know, if my name popped up. Um, we finished uh, shooting our open. I didn't have, I wasn't announced as an honorable mention. Get back upstairs. thinking, all right. So maybe top 20 here. So they go from 20 to 16, 15 to 10. And I'm not in it. I'm like, all right, I'll be happy with it. I'd be really happy with a top 10. They go 10, nine, skip to seven. There's like a 10 minute, 15 minute delay because they skipped the number. They go back to eight, uh, all the way down to six. And they start the all American. I'm not at six. I'm not at five. I'm not at four. And I'm like, wow. All right. This could be happening. I wasn't at three. And I wasn't at two. 
And at that point I was thinking to myself, like, there's just no possible way. Like I was like shaking. Like, I couldn't believe it in a good way, obviously. Um, and then I see my ugly mug uh, and a picture I sent into John pop up in the graphic on Twitter. Now, mind you, the web stream that they were running was down. Something had broken. So they were doing it all on Twitter, tweet by tweet. So we were at the mercy of how quickly they could tweet out these graphics and whatnot. And I am I allowed to curse? Yes. Okay. So, and I'm, this is a, an exact interpretation of, or exact replication of how I reacted to seeing my name on there. It was this level. I didn't yell. I didn't scream. It was... Holy fuck, it's the that I want. <laughs> that, in that tone, in that just shocked manner. And there was uh, a Bulls Vision, uh, it was the production crew there, who was an uh, employee who was sitting behind me, who was like, also really happy. He was almost more excited in the moment than I was. And then, of course, my phone started blowing up. Mike Lefko was down on the field conducting his pregame interview with the head coach, gave him a thumbs up down there, and it was just a really surreal moment. And then John Trelesnick called, some of the former winners called, and uh, needless to say, my scorebook did not get completed until the end of the first inning. <laughs> <laughs> Do you it remember the result of that game and how the broadcast went? No, no recollection whatsoever. Who was the judge that told you that they had already heard your stuff, and what was the connection? Uh, it was Bob Sosi uh, from the Patriots. He uh, their radio play-by-play voice. And uh, Bob has been uh, such a good friend to me over the last few years. And him and I had just connected through Twitter when he was still at Navy. And um, I had reached out in the past, and he was really receptive to answering a couple of my questions. And so we had some familiarity with each other. And then he um, obviously got the Patriots job, and he's one of the best, I think, play-by-play voices in the game right now. Um, And... I just can't say enough about Bob and how kind and courteous he's been with me and, you know, given me some of his time to, you know, talk on the phone or talk in person or go to breakfast when I have a game in his, in his area. And just to, to see that message from him um, in response when I asked him to listen to my stuff when I was a senior was just, it was surreal. That entire experience from applying to hearing that from Bob and John beforehand um, to Seeing my name, it, it just, it was all surreal. Has winning that award opened up any doors that you don't think would have been opened had you not won it? That's a great question. And I, I think I, I'd be naive if I didn't say that it has helped. Um, I don't know to what degree, to, to what degree um, but it certainly, you know, puts your name out there a little more. I'm not sure if. I was just Josh Appel from the University of South Florida. If I'd have the same quote unquote credibility coming out of college that I would, you know, with what did happen, which was, you know, Jim Nance award winner from the University of South Florida. So I'm sure it helped um, in, you know, getting eyes on my stuff at the very least, but it definitely helped as far as getting the FIU job um, right out of college. That's for sure. Um, And that was a great experience as well. So what I ask everyone who's won the Nance Award is, when did you get your call from Jim Nance, and did you answer it right away? Um, I did answer it right away, and it's such a blur. Um, I, it was a number I, I didn't recognize, but it was Jim calling from his cell, and uh, not his jail cell, obviously, his cell phone. I should probably clarify a phrase <laughs> in there. Uh, uh, it was Jim calling, and I had 
I think I was getting ready for a broadcast or I was getting ready to go somewhere. I just hopped out of the shower. I had answered my phone um, really quickly. And I just said, Hey, what's up? And he goes, hello, Josh, this is Jim Nance. And my heart sunk because I answered that phone call so nonchalantly, not even thinking that that's who that could possibly be. Or no, actually, I didn't say, hey, what's up? I said, hey, who's this? That was how I answered the phone. <laughs> and I, I, like, I just couldn't believe when he started talking. I think after he said hello and introduced himself, I think I apologized profusely. Um, for <laughs> what I felt was so disrespectful in the way I answered the phone. But Jim is such a, a nice and down-to-earth guy. We talked for 10, 15 minutes, congratulated me, um, talked about some general stuff. And um, it was, I believe, the day or two after I had won that I got the call from him, I want to say. It might have been a little later on, but I think it was pretty recent after that. I know it's usually right around the Masters, so sometimes it comes a, comes a little late, but... Always an interesting story, I think. Since then, you've judged for the Nance Awards, and I was wondering what the judging process was like, because I don't think we've talked to anybody about what goes in behind the scenes being a judge and how many tapes you have to go through, how much time it takes, uh, what your thoughts are when you hear these bright up-and-comers. Well, so we get sent the, um, I don't know if I'm giving away some secret info here, but um, John and the folks at SCAA, they narrow the field down. Um, and I guess they rank it all the way up to seven. And then we get the six All-Americans. And then the judges determine from those six where they rank. And I got to tell you, in judging this from the year since I've won, there are so many impressive, impressive students out there who are now in the field. Um, and it was very, very hard to rank, you know, because you're really splitting hairs at a certain point, you know, like, and I think back to, to my year as well, like, was there, like, you're splitting hairs between myself and the two or three kids who are behind me, even the other All-Americans. Like, it's just, it's such a, you know, it's one person's opinion. It's not, you know, fact-based or anything like that. But, you know, we get their reels. They're all about, you know, 15, 20 minutes long, depending. And then you just kind of rank them from there. And, you know, the past three winners, uh, Nate Gatter, Katie Emmer, uh, and Drew Carter this past year, just all three so impressive and uh, certainly uh, deserving of the award. I know you had Drew and Katie on. I listened to that episode. Uh, that was a really cool episode. I liked that one. Well, it was just really convenient that they both happened to be where I am. <laughs> right? But you surprised Drew. I did. That was fun. I, I, did, I did enjoy that one with that. Uh, I should have got some wrestling heel music to come on right as she walked in, but. Oh, wasn't able to pull that's it off. right up my alley, that, that, uh, the wrestling references. Love that. I think that's enough about the Jim Nance Award. It's always fun, but I want to get back to your career, and you mentioned that the Jim Nance Award helped you to get the FIU job, Division I uh, football and men's basketball, right out of college. Walk us through the process of landing that gig. So it actually um, happened kind of randomly, to be honest with you. So um, I was in the process that summer of finishing um, after I graduated, I was finishing out the season with the Clearwater Threshers. I was their number two broadcaster with uh, Kirsten Carbach. And, you know, my lease in Tampa at my apartment ended 
before the season ended. And so the pressure was even higher to, you know, figure out what I was going to do for the fall. And so I had applied for a few things, um, gotten a bite on a job at a division one college, not doing football, but doing their other sports there and did a couple of phone interviews and they were going to bring me out um, to campus to um, interview in person. And during that time, um, I, one of the people who I used to intern for at 790 ticket um, was now an executive at the station. And he messaged me on Twitter of all places and said, Hey Josh, I don't know if you have found anything yet um, for the fall, but we got the rights for FIU football this year. And they're looking for a broadcaster. Um, send your stuff to this person if you're interested. And the obvious answer was, yeah, I'm interested. Um, I didn't hear from anything from them for like a month and then finally did. And it was a week or two that I was before I was supposed to go um, to that college to uh, interview in person. And Bobby Staub, who was the associate AD at the time at FIU, explained to me the parameters of the job. And really what it boiled down to was a familiar area in a place right around where I grew up. Division one football out of college, division one basketball out of college. I got to, you know, again, live in a place that I'm familiar with. And uh, it just seemed like a no brainer, regardless of what the compensation would be, which really didn't matter to me. It was the fact that it was division one baseball or division one football, excuse me, and division one basketball. Um, and they hired me and it was a great experience. I became really close to my analyst for that season. Him and I are still very close to this day. Um, and it was just an amazing one season there um, at FIU, regardless of the on-field results. And I mentioned it earlier, but, you know, developing the relationships with people that I got to be around, coaches, players, my broadcast partner, um, and just nothing but good things to say. And you quickly made the jump to network broadcaster, not with the biggest network, but certainly – uh, on their website, it says it's the biggest independent network, Sports USA, doing NFL football, uh, just, I believe, two years out of college. How did you land that position, being in Florida, when that, if I read correctly, is based in Los Angeles? So you don't have the backyard advantage this time. Right. So um, I had somebody helping me out, you know, sending my reel out to um, different outlets, in the off chance that, you know, we get a bite. And one of the places we sent it to was to Sports USA. And I think the Jim Nance Award uh, kind of helped lend credibility to my name in that point. I'm not sure that the email would have been opened if that was that detail wasn't included. Um, so my now boss, Larry Kahn, emailed back and said, yeah, I'd love to talk to Josh. And this was the summer before I started at FIU. I had already accepted that job, but... Um, this was around that time. So it was just, I, I thought of it as like making a, a connection and making a, you know, an in with this person um, right away. Can't hurt to take the phone call, never know when it'll help you down the road um, and develop that relationship early on. And so what we did was we spent an hour on the phone. We, he went through with me um, a full quarter of one of my broadcasts from my senior year at USF. And he said, look, um, fix these things, um, send me some stuff later in the FIU season, and maybe we'll work on getting you on a bowl game. So I was like, awesome, great, sounds good to me. So about nine or ten weeks into the season at FIU, I finally found a stretch that, you know, I was confident in sending. Not that I didn't, you know, 
wasn't confident in, in you know the broadcast previously, but I felt that like this was a worthy enough stretch to send to say, all right, I'm ready to you know work for your national network. And so I don't hear. I email Larry. I don't hear from him for like a week, and then he finally get an email in my inbox from him, and it says, "Hey Josh, sounds great. Do you want to do the Independence Bowl for us this year?" And I said, within five minutes, uh, yes. Um, so I did that. Uh, I responded. And then a day later, I get another email from Larry. And it says, hey, you're also in Florida. If you're going to do the Independence Bowl, you could probably do the Outback Bowl for us too. Would you like to? Obviously, it's a yes. And so I did the Independence Bowl and the Outback Bowl. And then after the Outback Bowl, um, I was at dinner with a friend of mine from college who I hadn't seen in a while. And we had just sat down to eat before my flight after the game. And I got a call from Larry. He's like, hey, Josh, listen to the broadcast. Some of it, you know, really enjoyed it. Um, you know, what are your plans for next year? And uh, I said to him, you know, I told FIU that I was going to be back for a second season. But, you know, I would love to out, you know, when we can, maybe doing some games again for you next season. And he said, well, you should tell FIU that you're not coming back. You're going to do a full schedule for us. And at that point, I just, number one, was in shock. Uh, he explained to me, you know, all right, so my idea is that, you know, because we have uh, a college game on Saturday and every other week we have a doubleheader on Sunday. And so my idea is to have you do one or the other, you know, each week. And I just thanked him profusely. I said, sounds great to me. And I ended up going out there in July um, of that off season, you know, meeting in person with them for a couple of days and kind of finalizing the early season schedule and getting everything in order. And uh, here we are in year three. It's, uh, it's been a crazy surreal ride. Really all the last three years since I graduated has been crazy surreal. Um, I, I would have never guessed that, you know, this quickly, um, I would be fortunate enough to have it work out the way it has. I'm just making the most of it, you know, I mean, that's really all you can do. Um, you know, it's it, in year three of the, such a young age and kind of start to take things for granted. And, you know, each week when I get into our booth, um, this year it's been mostly NFL. And even if it was college still, um, you just kind of have to take it all in and realize how fortunate, you know, I am for the opportunity or to have the opportunity to be doing what I'm doing because not everybody gets to, you know, experience this, especially at such a young age. And, you know, just really thankful to Larry and everybody at Sports USA who trusted me, number one, when I didn't trust myself. Um, to, you know, be in this position. What were the things that they told you you needed to fix and send back in your tape? And how did you fix that? Uh, one of the things that um, I've always struggled with um, in college was, you know, kind of getting my voice under control. Um, I'm not really breaking any news here, but, you know, I kind of have a deep voice. I have a good voice. But it was all about kind of controlling it and not going too over the top. And there were other, you know, in, in excitement, I should say. Um, and there were some technical things that my boss preferred, you know, near side, far side, or left and right side instead of near and far side. Just little things like that. And uh, that's a preference that he has. Obviously, some people do differently. I don't really see anything wrong with near side, far side. But he liked it one way, and I thought to myself, well, if he's going to be the one hiring me, I should probably 
uh, defer to what he likes to hear. So um, it was just simple things. You know, one of the things that I've also tried to work on was being conversational and not being too harsh um, in what I call games. And so that's one of the big things that I had to harp on as well that I still work on to this day. Did you, you said you had somebody helping you sending out uh, emails and just uh, reaching out to people to potentially hire you. Did you have an agent at that point or who was that person? It was, um, his name was David Brody. Um, he was my broadcast coach for lack of a better term. Um, I had uh, the privilege of having him listen to my stuff every week, once a week from when I was a freshman at USF until very recently. And uh, he was on payroll at USF. You know, we had fun. we were a student government organization, both radio. And so we had money set aside to um, have him, you know, do sessions with us each week. And, you know, we kind of struck up a relationship and he said, look, um, you know, this is, doesn't have to be an official thing really, but, you know, if you need some help and you want some help and trying to find jobs, you know, I've represented people in the past, I can help you out. So he acted as uh, a, a pseudo agent pretty much just as someone who was representing me. And, you know, David gets a, a huge amount of credit for, you know, helping me, you know, become a better broadcaster over the last four years, because, you know, getting good critiques from people is so important because you don't want to be repeating the same mistakes over and over and over again. It's great to get the experience, but if you're also not learning from the mistakes you make, then you're just repeating everything, if that makes sense. So he was an integral part of not only myself getting better as a broadcaster, but really helping, you know, kickstart everything after I graduated. Do you have an agent now? I do, indeed. And you've actually what, had him on the podcast before. What was the process of of booking that agent, and how did you how did you get their attention? Did they find you? How did it all work out? I'm assuming it was Kevin, if you said he's been on before. Yeah, Kevin is my agent now. So um, I love Kevin. Kevin's awesome. I've really enjoyed working with him, and, and he's become a really good friend as well, which I think is hugely important in this in these types of relationships. So. Anyways, so um, when I got the job with Sports USA and that kind of got out there, I had a couple of um, agents reach out to me. And I told my boss at Sports USA that I had a couple of agents reach out to me. And it was really the first time that it happened. And so he put me in touch with uh, Maury Gosbrand. He said, You know, I know Maury. We've come across each other. I'm going to send you, I'm going to send him your stuff and, you know, talk to him and see what he thinks. And our in, my introductory phone call with Maury was over an hour long. And the other two that I had were good conversations, very nice uh, people on the other end of the line um, on both the other ones. Um, but they only lasted like 15, 20 minutes. And Maury took over an hour out of his day to get to know me, ask me questions, um, have me ask him some questions. And we kept in touch. And by the end of that calendar year, at the end of 2017, beginning of 2018, I said, you know, I'm ready to do this, you know, let's go. I'm, I'm ready to, you know, get more opportunities, ready to dip my toes into maybe doing some TV and, you know, advance my career. You know, here we are. And so uh, Maury and Kevin have been great. Um, I work more with Kevin now, and uh, but we still keep in touch with Maury a lot, obviously. But uh, Kevin has been fantastic. Um, and, and the entire experience with um, the Montag group has just been incredible. And so from that phone call, the original phone call with Maury, I hung up the phone 
And I texted my friends, a couple of my friends right away. And I said, guys, I just talked to this guy. And I really think this is, this is the time to do it. I think it's the time to jump. And we should mention that we were talking about Kevin Belby of the Montag Group. He was ah, on yeah. episode 88. We said <laughs> Kevin. I never said Belby. And that's probably my fault because I didn't do a good transition in there. But uh, all the same, what have you done on TV? And how has the transition gone going from full-time radio to being less talkative on TV? Well, that's been a huge adjustment, obviously. Um, I did my first two TV broadcasts for football last season. I did a couple of games for uh, Watch ESPN. I did North Carolina A&T at East Carolina to start the year. And then at the end of the season, I did uh, Marshall and Virginia Tech for the ACC Network before the ACC Network, as you know, now existed. Um, and then I had done two basketball games last year for Stadium. And then this season, I did one game of football for Stadium, and I have my first basketball game of this season coming up uh, for Stadium next week. Um, it's definitely, obviously, an adjustment. Um, you know, that first game, I was a little bit nervous, and what made the, the anxiety, I guess, continue was the fact that, you know, whew, it was opening weekend, so you had the full slate of games on Saturday, and then they obviously had that special Sunday game, Sunday night. It was LSU-Miami that year. But Saturday night's game got postponed because of terrible weather in uh, in Greenville, North Carolina. And there was some talk going around that, you know, because Cruz had to get somewhere else, um, that we might not be doing a broadcast the next day. And I was like, oh, you got to be kidding me. And then obviously we ended up ironing everything out, and we did the broadcast on Sunday. So we were a standalone broadcast, nothing else going up against us, pretty much leading into Miami and LSU. Um, and that was, a, you know, obviously a great experience, but, you know, you got to kind of figure things out when it's your first one on the fly. So, you know, I overprepared. Um, I, you know, I look back at it, and you know, you, you kind of psychoanalyze everything. But overall, I was happy with how it went. But when I would, you know, look back, you know, the descriptions, you could tell it was someone who was coming off radio and doing it on TV. And so I held that in the back of my mind going into the second one I had that year. I was really, I didn't have the second one scheduled for a while. And I was really hoping that I'd get a chance to improve off the first one. It wasn't bad by any means, but obviously it's the first one. So, you know, you, there are plenty of improvements that I had to make. And so I got an email later on in the season that contingent upon Virginia Tech beating Virginia um, on Black Friday. They had a, a hurricane canceled game earlier in the year, so they would have they would want to have a makeup game um, the weekend of December first to you know try and extend their bowl streak. They were five and six. They beat Virginia in overtime. I was doing USF UCF on national radio, which was a really cool uh, full circle thing for me last year, and I was in touch with Corey, texting the score back and forth, rooting for Virginia Tech. So we'd be able to get that second game, and lo and behold, they did. Um, I did the broadcast, and I was really happy with how it went. Um, I felt we were a lot more conversational. I felt that it was, you know, you always hear the captions, not descriptions for TV compared to radio, and I felt like I was more in that realm, uh, in that broadcast than I was in the first one, and I came away really happy with it. Um, and then, you know, that's the last one of the season. See if you're all right. Next year, let's you know take the experiences we had there and apply it to uh, this season. And uh, I thought the one at the beginning of the year went well. 
well enough the stadium has to be back to do some basketball. So, Do you like TV or radio better? I love them both equally. Um, I think radio will always be my first love just because it's what I've – that sounds so weird to say, but uh, that's what I grew up doing. It's what I've come up doing. Um, and there's just something about it, being the, the eyes, the ears, and the mouth for the person listening, you know, describing everything that happened. Well, you are the connection to someone on the radio, putting them there on the spot. And, and the appeal of that, to me, is really cool. But at the same time, who doesn't love doing TV if you get the opportunity, you know? And Everybody likes the paycheck anyway, it, right? It has nothing to do with the paycheck, although it's nice. But it has nothing to do with the paycheck. It's just, you know, that experience is really cool, too, because you get to have more storytelling, especially for football, um, on TV than you do for radio. Because for radio, it's pretty much, all right, call the play, your analyst talks, and you're setting up the next play. And then, you know, you have a little bit of downtime to work in some stories and work in some nuggets. But, you know, there's a lot more time for that when you're on TV than there is on radio. So I reached out to John Chelesnick to ask if he had anything I should ask you. I would have asked Kevin if I had known that you were represented by him before this. I should have looked that up. Uh, Bad on me for missing out on that. But he said (laughs) that you recently got to do World Team Tennis Broadcast. Yes, How did did. you end up there? How familiar with your tennis? How familiar with tennis were you? Just walk us through that experience. So I'm a very casual tennis fan. Like I'll watch all the Grand Slams. I'll watch Wimbledon. I'll watch the U.S. Open. I'll watch the Australian Open um, and things like that. Um, but I didn't watch it on a regular basis. I knew all the big names. But, you know, my in-depth familiarity was not, you know, all that extensive. Um, Kevin had reached out to me um, a month or two before and said, hey, uh, this opportunity came up. World Team Tennis asked if, you know, you'd be available for these two weeks in Orlando. You do um, six of the seven home matches. The seventh is going to be on CBS Sports Network because they have the, the right deal with the league. But you'd be working with a guy named Mackie McDonald on ESPN Plus over the course of two weeks um, in Orlando at the USTA National Campus. Would you be interested? And my first thought was, I've never done tennis before. So I was a little hesitant at first. But then I thought about it, and I said, you know what? How am I going to learn how to do tennis if I don't start somewhere and start doing it? And it was another opportunity to do some TV and get some reps in a different sport that I'd never done before um, and, you know, see some tennis in a league that I think is is awesome. Just the format of everything, some of the players they get, they get into play as well. Um, I had a, a ton of fun. Um, working over the course of those two weeks, it was an easy answer to say yes. It's a three-and-a-half-hour drive, if that, for me to go and do. And working with Mackie, I don't know if you're familiar with Mackie, but he was a national champion in singles at UCLA. He's my age. I'm 25, so he's right around the same age as me. And uh, he was on tour. He made it to the quarterfinals at Wimbledon in singles um, in 2018, but at Roland Garros, uh, later on in the season, he tore his hamstring off the bone. Ooh. And so he was out for the year. And so he trains and lives in Lake Nona and works out at the USCA National Campus. So he's, while he's rehabbing, 
him and his agent figured it would be a good idea to, you know, get involved in the media side of things. And so I got to know Mackie very well. Um, we called all six matches together and seeing him grow from broadcast number one, the last one was really cool. And it was, it was a nice dynamic off the air for us because, you know, he was figuring out, you know, what it was like to be on the air and I was figuring out how to do tennis. And so there was a lot of back and forth of, you know, giving pointers each way, you know, explaining the game, certain intricacies of it. And then on my end, kind of helping him out with, you know, kind of being on the air and giving him some pointers as well. Hey, you're uh, nothing but of, great experiences okay. in that league. I loved every second of it. You were cutting in and out there for a moment. So just FYI, I don't know if you were doing anything or if it was just bad luck, but if you were, don't do it again. What uh, what what was the last thing you heard me say? Uh, it, it'll be easily editable. Uh, it was just kind of finishing the last like two or three seconds of that thought. So don't worry about it. I'll edit it out and post. Okay. It a lot of times, yeah. All I was saying was all I was saying was that I'm just a, a huge fan of that league and uh, really looking forward to doing more with them later on. It was an incredible experience with them. Were there any really hard foreign names? I just know watching Wimbledon, watching the U.S. Open. Some of the names have a lot of W's, R's, and Z's all right next to each other with no vowels in between. How do you – what were the weirdest names you had to deal with? Um, honestly, there weren't too many bad ones. Um, we, um, we had the opportunity to you know, kind of be close with the team, so if we ever had questions like that, um, we could obviously ask them, and they would you know, let us know what it was. Um, there was one that Mackie and I would always pronounce differently. Her name was Daria Jurek, um, and she played for the Orlando Storm. And Mackie would go back and forth on pronouncing it the right way and the wrong way. I don't mean to throw them under the bus or anything. But uh, for the most part, um, you know, the players are very receptive to um, us coming over and asking them questions and saying, hey, just want to make sure this is how you pronounce your name correctly. And so we didn't really have a lot of problems um, in, in that sense. And you know, it's a lot, it's not that it's not serious. I mean, they're playing for some prize money at the end in Vegas. So there is something that they're playing for, but it's a lot more laid back in fun atmosphere. So they're definitely a lot more um, receptive to us coming up to them and talking. One of the topics that we touch on pretty frequently on this podcast is leaving your comfort zone. And I've some really good broadcasters that I know won't do it because they're worried that somebody will hear them not at their best. And that, makes sense on a lot of levels. Some people say, you know what, I'm going to do whatever I can and try to learn it. You obviously, with your last answer, come out on that side. Uh, what is your thought process going into that as to balancing those two polarities? Um, to me, it's one of those things where, you know, you say yes to a, a great opportunity. Um, because again, how else are you going to learn how to do something if you don't do it? And I think the, a great example of this, and he's told this story plenty of times, but Peter Burns and how he got his job um, with SEC Network, um, how he had never been in that role before. But, you know, he took up the opportunity, and here he is now as one of the leading voices and studio hosts at SEC Network. And so I always think back to that, where you, know, you can't be afraid to take that jump or make that leap into an opportunity that you get. Because, you know, on the other end of it, you know, I'm still 25 years old. Who am I to say no to an opportunity like that? Um, and I, I think just saying yes and putting yourself um, 
in a situation where you can learn and get better and other things is something that you should take advantage of. And, you know, it might not go well. Like, I wasn't thrilled with every broadcast we did, but I left learning something different from each and every broadcast that we did, uh, just as it pertains to tennis. I had the same experience with soccer. Um, I do USL soccer um, for the USL Championship League. And uh, I've done it now for two years. The studio that we do the games out of is uh, right here near my apartment down in Fort Lauderdale. Um, but I had done some soccer in college, but my soccer knowledge is not extensive. But it's an opportunity to do games on ESPN Plus, um, call some exciting soccer, um, and again, get those reps. And, you know, doing sports that I didn't think I'd be doing at this level um, has been a really cool experience for me. I know I've said that a lot, but I mean, there's no other way to describe this journey than just a, a really fulfilling and cool experience. And being able to branch out more and do things like soccer and do things like tennis, it's been really rewarding. And, you know, I wouldn't have had these experiences if I didn't say yes when the opportunities presented themselves. Having that success at that young of age, I've seen a lot on social media of people in broadcasting who question the hire of, of a great example recently is Noah Eagle, who got the Clippers radio job right out of college. And did that probably have something to do with his connections? Certainly. But anyone who's listened to him, he's probably better than the person not liking the hiring decision, have you ever received any uh, resentment or ill will for succeeding at such a high level at such a young age? Well, that's something that's kind of always been in the back of my mind, you know, it's, and it's only natural. There's a lot of self-doubt um, and a lot of questioning of, do I actually belong here? And, and there are a couple of things. First, I want to touch on, on the no eagle thing. First off, I would never say anything like that. I know, I know you weren't saying that I did, but just in general, I would never say anything like that because who am I to question why someone his age is getting the opportunity he did when I was doing Giants-Eagles at 23 years old on national radio? So I, I, I can't even comment on it from that sense. But at the same time, you know, Noah deserves it. Noah's a great kid. He carries himself professionally, and he 100% deserves that job. And look, at the end of the day, once the, it's, it's all great to say that stuff before the season and represent yourself well. But at the end of the day, games are going to tip off and you're going to have to show that you can do the job. And it's about performing at that level once you get it. And Noah's taking advantage of every second so far. I've listened to a few of his broadcasts and um, I just, I couldn't be happier for him. It's such a great opportunity, obviously. But hearing and reading that, you know, he went to Steve Ballmer's office for a one-on-one -on -one meeting and he impressed Steve Ballmer as a 22 year old or 21 year old. I'm not sure when he turned uh, 22, but I mean, think about how impressive that is for someone that young to go in and impress a guy like Steve Ballmer. Like he didn't just get the job. He had to interview. He had to go through that whole process. And now he has to prove that he's good enough for it. And he obviously is. He's a great kid and a great broadcaster. And uh, obviously it runs in the genes. <laughs> Yeah, for the record, I was not criticizing that. I was just read that. No, no, no. I, I know. I, I, didn't, I didn't mean to. It was more of a general thing to people who work because I saw a lot of it too. And again, um, I, I don't know. I haven't seen that directly tweeted or talked about towards me directly. I haven't seen it like that, but I'm sure it happens. I mean, look, I, I'm really young and I'm in a great spot. I, I can't deny that. But at the end of the day, you know, you have to perform. And I, it took me a while to realize that number one 
And number two, just get over the fact that, you know, you're not going to be able to please everybody. And you just got to kind of worry about yourself and try and get better each and every broadcast, each and every play. Um, and I know that's cliche, but it's true. Like at a certain point, it doesn't matter what age you are, what opportunity you get. If you get that opportunity, you have to perform and you have to do well or else that opportunity is going to go away. So, and Noah, just as that example, has done that so far. He's performed so well and he's going to continue to get better. He's a star in the making. Um, and all I can do on my end at the same time is just try and keep plugging and get better every broadcast. And I know that if I slip up or if I get worse, there are great broadcasters out there who Sports USA or any of these other outlets who um, are crazy enough to hire me um, to do games. Who can replace me with? Like it's things can be pulled away in a half a second. And, you know, all I can do is go out there and try and perform and do the best that I can do and try and prove that I belong. And, you know, Larry and the people at Sports USA trust me enough to, you know, get these assignments and, you know, I just got to make the most of it and prove them right. We haven't even mentioned your work for the Clearwater Threshers that it appears you've been working for since you were still in college in 2014. How did you pick up that position and what are some of the highlights? Because minor league baseball is kind of a different animal than any other sports casting job. Just tell us some of your fun stories uh, from the bus rides and old stadiums covering minor league A-ball. Okay, great story. Um, well, first off, uh, Kirsten Carbach was the number one after she graduated. She got that job shortly after she left USS. And I was working at a summer camp down here in South Florida um, my first summer after college. And so after my sophomore year, I had planned on going back to work at a summer camp when Kirsten said to me, hey, Josh, I need a number two for this year. You know, what are your plans like for the summer? And I told her I called a couple of people and asked what they thought. And looking back, it was a really dumb phone call because the obvious answer is yes, take that job and then get that experience. So I accepted. I had worked with Kirsten the previous year at USF. Her and I had a really good relationship and um, I consider her a really good friend and I'm rooting for her to eventually make it up to the big leagues because she's certainly good enough. She finally got up to double A and that's long overdue in my opinion, because she is excellent at what she does and just day in and day out getting to learn from her and, you know, kind of see how she attacks the day and how hard she works. It's really impressive. And, and the day she gets the call to the big leagues, just like this call to go to double A, it'll be long overdue because she a hundred percent deserves it. Um, but I remember you know, minor league baseball is set up in two halves because obviously there's a lot of roster turnover as guys get called up and sent down and whatnot. And so the first um, half of 2014 when we were there, the record of the team was 17-51. and 51. So I only did mostly home games and drivable road games because I was the number two. And, you know, meeting with the manager every day, Nelson Prada, um, he was always gracious with his time. But just trying to navigate how you approach covering that team that is very clearly struggling. Like, you know, you, you go through these teams and you say, you know, they at least have, you know, two or three legitimate prospects, you know, organizationally, maybe not nationally, but organizationally. The top prospect to start that season for the Threshers was a guy by the name of Dan Child, and he was a relief pitcher, and he was the 30th ranked prospect in the Phillies organization. So 
it was a, a roster that was deprived of talent. A lot of nice guys, don't get me wrong. Um, but learning how to navigate a situation where not only are you losing more than you're winning, but to that degree of going 17 and 51 um, and how to cover that while being objective but not overly negative. And it was something I got talked to about because I was an inexperienced broadcaster. I know how to handle that. So, you know, you got to kind of rein it in a little bit while being a realist, but at the same time, you're the team's broadcast. You know, not that I was trashing players, but, you know, you, you, it's a long season. You tend to get negative at certain points. Um, but what, what was really cool was, and this was around the time when the Phillies really started their rebuild, when they got rid of Ruben Amaro as the GM and they um, hired Matt Klintak and they made all the trades of the veterans and they kind of replenished the system. So in the second half, um, J.P. Crawford got called up. Uh, Roman Quinn got called up. We started to see some of the prospects that they got back in return for some of their major league guys, and they were a lot more competitive in the second half. They were more around 500, and there was a lot more talent in the field. And then you go to 2015, and that was my favorite season, I think, 2015 and 16, but mainly 15. Um, that was the year that we had Reese Hoskins and Scott Kingery and Andrew Knapp and all, and Roman Quinn and JP Crawford and Mitch Walding and all these guys who eventually were big parts of the, of the Phillies major league team and seeing those guys grow from high A ball players to, you know, eventual major leaguers was just, it's awesome to see. And that's, to me, that's the most rewarding thing besides getting the experience selfishly of, you know, doing games every day, but building relationships, not just the guys in the field, the coaching staff. I know I've said this a lot, but even the people in the front office, uh, our PR guy, or the broadcasters in the league, our production crew there, the front office staff, promotions, all those relationships, and those are people who I still talk to to this day. In fact, it was the uh, PR uh, guy, Rob Stretch's birthday today. Sent him a text earlier today. I haven't talked to him in a while. We're still good friends. Um, but experiencing how good that team was in 2015, um, with Hoskins, Kingery, Knapp, Crawford, Walding, all of them. Uh, it was it was just awesome. And uh, I remember a great story. Um, we were in Bradenton for a doubleheader. And it's an open air, like it's one of the only broadcast booths in the league, I feel like, that you have a real shot at uh, catching a foul ball. And so it's the first thing of the doubleheader. There's no air conditioning in, in the broadcast booths in Bradenton. It's an August afternoon or late July afternoon. It's just unbearably hot outside. And game starts, second batter of the game. Foul ball comes right up to the booth, and I reach up barehanded, left hand, front of my laptop, and I squeeze it, and I caught it. And my hand after that hurt so bad, so bad, but it was worth it. Definitely worth it. The only foul ball I've ever caught in the booth in – you know, five, six, seven seasons of doing baseball, whether it's minor league or college baseball. Really awesome stuff. What are your broadcast horror stories? And I know you're at least somewhat familiar with this podcast, so you know this was coming at some point. I hope you had time to come up with a good one. But in case you don't know, that's when something that you could laugh at now that was mortifying in the moment, whether it's a horrible location, all your equipment deciding to malfunction simultaneously, uh, hitting a deer in a rainstorm on the way home. It, it could be anything. So I have, I have three. 
they're short, but I have three. Okay. So uh, the first one is one of my favorite travel stories. Um, I think that will be hard to top just in general. So my junior year of college, USF football was playing at Wisconsin and Camp Randall um, in a non-conference game. And that was one that when I found out, I was like, all right, we're 100% going to this. We're 100% going to call the game. So we get everything done. We get our flights booked. And then we it's time to leave. It's the Friday before. And so we make our first flight connecting through Atlanta. It was like 530 in the morning. And we're waiting at the gate for our next flight to go to Madison or to Milwaukee. I forget where we were flying into. But as we're waiting, about 15, 20 minutes before we board, we see a news alert on the TVs that all flights to the Midwest are canceled because somebody set fire to air traffic control in, I want to say it was Chicago, somewhere in the Midwest. Regardless, it caused all the flights to that area to be canceled. So we're like, oh, you got to be kidding me. There's, there's like, we're going to miss the game. We wait in line, we wait in line in, uh, in Delta to, you know, or American, whatever airline we were flying to figure out what our alternative would be. And so what we end up doing is finding a flight later on that night at like nine o'clock, eight o'clock, something like that to Appleton, Wisconsin. And we were going to rent a car from Appleton and drive for two hours, two and a half hours from there to Madison for the game the next day. So we end up staying in downtown Atlanta for the day. It was myself, my broadcast partner, and Joey Johnson, who covered the team as a beat writer for the Tampa Tribune, which is now defunct, sadly, um, at the time. And so we went to the College Football Hall of Fame in downtown Atlanta. We ate around there, walked around, had a good time, and then we finally flew to Appleton, Wisconsin. We get to baggage claim. And Joey's bag comes out and my broadcast partner's bag comes out. We don't put our radio equipment in check-in for this very reason. We carry it on with us. And guess whose bag didn't make it on the baggage claim line? I'm going to guess you. My bag did not make it. So, so I was in a USF baseball hat. I'm in a USF quarter zip and jeans. And sneakers. And I'm like, uh, what am I going to do? So we get our rental car and we go to Walmart. And I bought the most cardboardy feeling uh, khaki pants for $8 at Walmart. And I said, the best I can do is wear those with what I'm wearing now. And so the next day, I called the game and what I wore on the plane and khakis that I bought for $8 at a Walmart in Appleton, Wisconsin. Came home the next day after the game and my bag was waiting for me at my door. <laughs> so that's, that, that's story number one. And one I'll never forget. Number two, we had uh, a home broadcast. I want to say it was my sophomore year against the University of Miami. And USF was not very good at football at that time. They were still kind of trying to figure things out in the first year of Willie Taggart's rebuild. And so it was a tough game. And at one point, USF was trailing in the first half, late in the second quarter. And USF comes out to punt. And it's one of the worst punts I've ever seen in my life. It was, I think, a two-yard punt. 
And I don't know if I have the audio somewhere of it, but I said something to the effect of, and I'll say the punter's name, and Shabani absolutely shanks it. It goes out of bounds on the right side, a two-yard punt. And I look over to my right, and both kids that I was on the broadcast with were hunched over, hysterically laughing about how awful the punt was. And so then I start laughing and I try and, you know, continue the conversation and I can't talk through laughing. So I throw it to break when I'm not supposed to try to regather myself. I think I regather myself. I come back and I'm still laughing because they won't stop laughing. And so the (laughs) laughter was contagious and we finally got over it. But for a good 30 to 45 seconds with a commercial break included, I was trying to talk through laughter after a two yard punt. And uh, it was definitely a good learning experience. It's something I look back on now um, where we can laugh about it. And then the third and final one, I know this is a very long winded answer, but uh, my senior year of college, we had a game at ECU at East Carolina. Actually, I have a fourth one after this that I just thought of. That's it's great. a podcast. And it's more Go as long as you want. Fantastic. Nobody's going to be listening to this as far. They're going to want to fast forward through these stories, but that's fine with me. I'm going to say them anyways. So I'm notoriously long-winded. Ask anybody who knows me. So, which might not be a great thing uh, in this profession. But anyways, so we have a game at East Carolina, and going in, we know that we're going to be doing the game from the camera well above the press box. So it's covered, but not really. We were told that there was a shuttle uh, from the press parking lot to the stadium. So we day of the game, it's raining, pouring rain. It's a night game. We're hoping that it stops. But by the time we get there to our parking space, it had not stopped. It was still pouring. And the parking lot's a good mile at least away from the stadium. And we parked the car. We're like, all right, where's the shuttle? There was no shuttle. So we walked about a mile, mile and a half in the pouring rain with our equipment up to the roof of the press box at Dowdy Thicklin Stadium before it got renovated and set it up drenched, soaking wet. Um, and it was one of the more uncomfortable broadcasts we ever had to do. Um, thankfully, we didn't get wet upstairs because, again, it was covered, but we were definitely just – there's no way we didn't smell terribly, like, wet, soggy, you know, from all the rain. Anyways, final story. Uh, last year's Independence Bowl. So uh, I'm not sure if you remember, but last year's Frisco Bowl was canceled because of weather in Texas. And I was flying into Dallas, and I was going to drive from Dallas to Shreveport for the Independence Bowl um, that day. So we're about an hour and a half, two hours away from landing in Dallas. And then all of a sudden, I get or the flight that uh, the uh, pilot comes on the loudspeaker and says, yeah, due to some weather in uh, Dallas, we have to divert the flight to Austin. Now, I don't know if you know this, but Texas is a big state. And Austin is a little bit further away from Shreveport than Dallas is. About an hour and a half, two hours from Dallas, about double that from Austin. And so I'm like, all right, this is not a good thing. The game's at noon the next day. I don't know what we're going to do. So we land in Austin. A lot of other flights had to do the same thing. So we end up sitting on the tarmac for about two hours. 
Um, it's about 9.30 at this point, and we finally get to a gate. We get off the plane. I call our travel person with Sports USA, and we iron out a plan. And I walk up to – she goes, all right, just go rent a car, drive there, drive as far as you can, and then, you know, get a hotel. So we get to – I get to the uh, rental car facility, and guess how many rental cars were left? None. None. So I frantically call back our travel person and she's like, all right, let me look around in the area and we'll see. So she finds the last remaining rental car at an executive airport about 15 minutes from the uh, airport in Austin. And so I Uber there, pouring rain, wind, everything. The place was shut down and I, they knocked on the door and they let me in. And it's this Nissan Versa small little Nissan Versa. And I said, you know what? It's a car and it'll get me there. But I still had a four hour drive in the pouring rain. The place had never been before uh, to get done. So in this part of Texas, there's strictly one lane roads, one way going, one lane going one way, one lane going another. And at that time of night at like 10, 30, 11 at this point, there's really only 18 wheelers on the road. And there was heavy winds, no lights on the street, and a lot of rain. And so I've never driven with the radio on lower volume, focused more with hands on 10 and 2 for the two and a half hours I drove in the pouring rain, feeling this little Nissan Versa get swiftly moved slightly from left to right because of the wind, humming past these 18-wheelers. I ended up stopping in Palestine, Texas at about 2.30 in the morning, 3 o'clock in the morning, sleeping for a few hours, waking up, driving the last hour and a half to Shreveport, uh, calling the game, and then driving back to Dallas after. Have you ever had problems renting a car for being too young? Uh, thankfully, no, because they have an insurance policy that unfortunately affects the uh, the, state, the, uh, the company. But I'm 25 now, so we're all good now. We're all Gucci. I, that's where I thought that I, that story was going initially, that they wouldn't give it to you. But... Oh, I would have been... Uh, I would have been apoplectic if that was the case. <laughs> I had a similar story where um, I have another. I have another one. So remember that Virginia Tech uh, Marshall game I did last December. I was doing double duty that weekend. I had that game on Saturday, and then I had a, a game in Nashville, Jets Titans, the next day. That's about a six-hour drive from Blacksburg to Nashville. So I finish the uh, the broadcast with Hudson Mason and watch ESPN at Virginia Tech. I hop in the rental car. And about 45 minutes in, I look up at my rear mirror, and there are police lights on. And I got pulled over for 45 minutes into my uh, 45 minutes into my six-hour drive uh, for speeding, <laughs> and had to drive the rest of that with that in the back of my mind, thinking, "All right, guess driving school or something of the like is in my near future." <laughs> Who are your favorite brothers? So you asked for one, I gave you five. You know what? Five is better than one as far as I'm concerned. So, <laughs> Who are your favorite broadcasters to listen to when you're either listening to, to learn new things or just have a night off and want to tune into a game? I mean, I, I love um, a lot of the guys. And, and, and the women, too, who are in this industry. I think that, you know, I know it's a very political answer to give, but I think that you you can pull something 
from different people, no matter who it is when you watch. Um, some of my favorites are the obvious ones. Um, Iron Eagle is incredible. Um, Jim Nance, obviously. I love the work that Kevin Burkhart does. Kevin Kugler, Kevin Harlan, all those guys. Uh, Mike Breen on basketball. Joe Buck on baseball. Rich Waltz, who did Marlins games for a while uh, down here. He's someone you can pick a lot up from. Uh, Dan Shulman. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the list goes on and on. It's hard to say, like, and then pinpoint one or the other. But I, I feel like there are so many great broadcasters going right now that I can sit down, turn on the TV, and watch it and say, I can pull something or I can learn something um, from any of these people. So the last question I'm going to ask you, when I did my research on you on Google, it turns out there's a whole bunch of Josh Appels, and that's not the most common name, so I didn't necessarily expect that. But it seems like there's uh, an All-American long snapper, a prominent graphic designer, a a baseball player. Have you ever gotten accidental tweets or emails or any kind of mix-up with the other Josh Appels? No, I actually haven't. But the long snapper from Indiana State, we are actually friends on Facebook and we follow each other on Twitter. Have you, you've never actually reached out to him, though. Uh, we've exchanged messages every, you know, every now and again. Well, just pleasantries. Hey, how you doing? Funny how you both have the same name. Good luck. <laughs> Things like that. Well, he got, he's finally made it as he finally got his name dropped on the Say the Damn Score podcast. Josh, if anyone wanted to reach out to you, what is the best way to do it? Uh, they can follow me on Twitter. My DMs are open. Slide right in. Um, at Josh Appel, J-O-S-H-A-P-P-E-L. Um, my email is also on my website. It's just my name. Um, but Twitter is the best place. Uh, you can follow me on Instagram as well, Josh underscore Appel. Those are the two places that I frequent the most as far as social media goes. And if you want to reach out, feel free to slide in the DMs. It's just uh, something unsavory about that terminology, slide into the DMs. <laughs> <laughs> I can't get over that. Hey, I'm like on the about, very old. how you frame it. I'm on the old side of being a millennial, so I'm not, I'm not so out of touch. But that just that term just always just seems weird. Anyway, thanks again for joining us on the podcast, Josh Appel. No problem at all. Thanks for having me. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to the Say the Damn Score podcast. Remember to subscribe to the show on the platform of your choice by clicking the big red subscribe button at the top of SayTheDamnScore.com. Also, please follow me on the social media outlet of your choice at Radio underscore Logan on Twitter, at Say the Damn Score on Instagram, or on Facebook.com slash Say the Damn Score. Also, honest feedback is always appreciated, whether that's an email, an iTunes review, or anything else that helps make the show better. I welcome that feedback, whether it's criticism or compliment. Finally, please reach out to the guests of the show so they know you appreciate them sharing their stories and taking their time to come on the podcast. As always, I'm your host, Logan Anderson, and the next time you're on the air, make sure to say the damn score just a little bit more.